I'm Abby Disney, and you're listening to All Ears. When we started this podcast in April, we were focusing on economic inequality. But inequality is not always just about economics. We all watched a public lynching. And it seemed important to focus directly on race and racial injustice. For the remainder of the season, I'm using my platform to talk with some amazing thinkers and movement leaders about how we got here and how we should move forward. My guest today is a brilliant thought leader in the fight for racial justice, but she doesn't just talk about racial justice. She talks about it as it is interconnected with economic justice. She promotes solutions. She doesn't just write about things. And for nearly two decades, she helped build the progressive think tank, Demos. Currently, she's the board chair of Color of Change. It's a great organization that has been around a long, long time. Heather also gave a very powerful TED Talk that you should go and find on the cost of racism for all of us. And she's also got a book coming out very, very soon called The Sum of Us. So, Heather, welcome. Thanks for joining me. I am so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Well... I wanted to just start with Gary, because I think when you and I met and talked for a long, long time, we kind of started with Gary, Mm. because Gary is so interesting. So can you you tell me a little version of the Gary story? Sure. Um, So as you said in the introduction, Abby, I worked for the greater part of two decades at a progressive think tank that was dedicated to addressing inequality in our economy and our democracy. And, you know, I really came to my work as a public policy wonk and advocate from an economic perspective. I grew up in Chicago at in an era of deindustrialization and a gutting of the public sector when, you know, the neighborhood that I grew up in on the south side of Chicago was having these massive economic shifts. And I wanted to know why and how we could do better um, and make the American dream more possible for more people. And so at this time, it was 2016 in August, I was on a show on C-SPAN called Washington Journal, which is basically like a radio call-in show, but on TV. Mm -hmm. It's very low budget. You just sort of, you know, answer the caller's questions live. It's just a picture of your face, basically, (laughs) sitting at a desk. You definitely need to come ready, particularly in the Obama era. It had become sort of like the racist caller on C-SPAN who was just, you know, waiting on the line to say his or her piece about what was happening in Washington was very much a trope. So... I was on and I was talking about taxes and jobs and um, all the other sort of economic issues that I normally talk about. And someone called in and identified himself as Gary from North Carolina. And the first words he spoke were, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. Hmm. And then he went on to talk about his prejudice and why he was you know, afraid of black men and drugs and gangs and crime, you know, this Mm -hmm. is live television. So I'm sitting there, you know, kind of nodding and, you know, modulating my breath. And and then he says, but I want to change. And I want to know what your guest, he says to the host, me, Mm -hmm. can tell me to do to become a better American. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I responded 
to particularly that last part, you know, this sort of mm-hmm. latent idea in his mind that he needed to become a better American and and in so doing, he had to deal with his prejudice. Mm-hmm. And so I responded off the top of my head and really from my heart. And I said, thank you for admitting your prejudice because so often we don't. And then I told him completely, you know, this is not my work, but I just said, you know, these are some things you could do to sort of unlearn some of the racial stereotypes and integrate your life. And that clip between us went viral. It's been seen at last Mm -hmm, count over mm -hmm. 20 million times. And in the end, I I ended up getting to know Gary. We found each other on Twitter and I had a business trip that took me to North Carolina and I went and visited with him and we've been in touch over Mm. these past now almost four years. And talking to him kind of led you into what is now your book and what your TED Talk is about, right? Yeah. I mean, it's been a confluence of things. You can never sort of pull out exactly what the thread was that got you to a place. But I had, as I said, started my career really wanting to solve big economic problems. And Mm -hmm. so often, whether it was in my work to try to prevent the financial crash of 2008 Mm -hmm. Or it was my work trying to raise wages for underpaid workers, or it was my work on the housing affordability or on the student debt crisis. I kept Mm -hmm. running up against just the fundamental belief in our politics of a hierarchy of human value. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the way that our economy is so cruel and has so little faith in people who are suffering, right? It's so Mm -hmm. punitive. It's so exploitative. Um, There's just sort of a a fundamental lack of a sense of we're all in this together. And if someone's down on their luck, they're actually down on their luck. They're not bad people, right? There's a sort of Mm -hmm, sense of mm -hmm. like, they're the rich people that are good people. They're middle-class people that are on their way to being good people. And and there are people who are struggling Mm -hmm. and there's just something wrong with them. And they probably actually can't be changed. And as I kept seeing that trope in our politics and kept trying to compare our solutions to economic changes like globalization and technological change with other countries that have a less diverse population, have, uh, you know, their population is more reflected in their decision makers and don't have our history of segregation, slavery, and, and genocide, it just kept coming back to racism. Mm-hmm. in these economic issues that were supposed to be race neutral, that were supposed to be about taxes, right? Um, exactly. And so Gary, for me, was a helpful aha moment because as I got to know him, it became very clear that he, as a white working class Navy veteran, was suffering from his mm-hmm. own racism and prejudice. And I thought, well, maybe it's possible that not only is racism a sort of unattributed actor in all of these economic problems that white people are also suffering from mm-hmm. low wages lack of health care you know student debt all of these things but maybe just fundamentally we have not been honest with ourselves about how pervasively racism has so warped our societies policy our interactions as human beings where we live everything and so we have not taken a true tally of the cost of racism to us all, mm-hmm. not just to this group over here or that group over here, but that it distorts our policymaking and it impoverishes everything we hold in common from our air to our roads and bridges to our sense of what's possible as a country. And I think yes. right now, Abby, obviously, mm-hmm. we are just living in the consequences, this feeling mm-hmm. like the coronavirus pandemic 
and the Trump presidency have exposed, you know, I mean, if you look at the polling, everyone of all political stripes just is sort of disgusted and shocked that mm-hmm. we can't rise to this occasion, that we yeah. have been, you know, unable to get masks to nurses. And, you know, it's just like, what? I thought we were supposed to be the greatest country on earth and we are fundamentally dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. And the journey that I went on for three years to write this book has really revealed how racism is at the core of so many of the dysfunctions that affect Mm -hmm. us all. You know, I I come from a family that's descended from slave-owning people in the South. And I have a, a, a theory that the damage done to them in their racism actually carries forward. I think evil is it sort of gets in and becomes a kind of a marker going forward because there's a way that um, the 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 backward gaze in your family with that kind of a history is perpetually on defense so that you get this kind of narrowed consciousness that is damaging to your ability to function and see the world as it is. I, I'm so interested because I heard you on Chris Hayes and you use this formulation that I guess sociologists write about called the social dominance orientation. Mm, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think I was raised partly because of where my mother's side of the family came from with a social dominance orientation or the idea that it was natural for me to live and exist above everyone else. Mm. Well, what you described, that epigenetic Uh, Mm -hmm. sort of carryover from generation to generation of the markings of the distortion, whether Mm -hmm. or not it distorts you as the person who has to invert all logic, all reason, all morality and human emotion in order to perpetuate slavery and racism, or the person who you know, is scarred by the traumas of racism. It's, it's, it's there. And even if you don't take it to the science, it's also about the stories that we learn, right? Mm -hmm. You, you were raised with these stories from your mother um, and her side of the family that just sort of said, you know what, in explicit and implicit ways, this basic sorting of our population is about right. Mm -hmm. And, and the justifications Mm -hmm. of, of a position of great authority, freedom, power. I think that is a core part of the American story. It's a core Mm -hmm. part of what I call in my book, the white story, which Mm -hmm. has at its core a zero sum. Um, And the zero sum is a big part of the social dominance theory that you just referenced. It's the idea that there's sort of only so much good Mm -hmm. life to go around. And so your prosperity must come at the expense of others. And if there are others beneath you in the social hierarchy who might possibly gain in any large numbers, mm-hmm. then it it's a threat to you and your position. Yeah. And not just to your position, but to some core sense of self. And that's absolutely what we're experiencing yeah. right now in our dominant absolutely. social narrative. Uh, there was a viral video of a of a guy yelling um, at a Black Lives Matter protest about how, you know, my family fought for the Confederacy and it's my culture. And they were farmers. And, and the guy, the protester says to him, who, who was working their fields? And uh, he got the import of the question right away. And he immediately retreated into, they were poor. Mm-hmm. And it was like an assertion of something. Yeah. Um, and, and a way to obviate 
the clear and obvious criticism yeah. of what he was saying. I mean, there's something so sneaky about contemporary racism, yes. you know, that the way that it, it can it can couch itself in so much coded language. You're right, Abby, to really point out that because we never had any kind of, um, well, I'll put it this way, because Reconstruction was stolen from us, yeah. and I don't just mean from Black people, I mean from America, right? The true refounding of America that was within our grasp. When we really had multiracial coalitions in the South, we really had representative leadership. We really had sort of a new founding in the post-Reconstruction, the post-war amendments to the Constitution that's, you know, that really spoke to equality. That was that was a new birth of freedom, right? And it was stolen from us by terror and mob violence. And because of that, we have not as a country, and I, and I mean the North's complicity in that as well, right? It wasn't just what happened in the South. It was the North and the West's complicity in that as well. We have not had a way for everyday Americans of all races to know how to situate themselves both in terms of morality and responsibility with the facts of the racial structuring of this country that continued in explicit forms until my childhood, right? And certainly in implicit forms today. And so um, what you find is that there's this strange jujitsu that has to happen in the mind where as a white person, you attach yourself to one of the fundamental lies of the white story, which is that we are always good, that whiteness does mean innocence, right? That's part of what the cultural valence of the term whiteness and the identity of whiteness was. That's why it should have been exalted and on high and had all of these privileges that others didn't because whiteness was goodness and blackness was criminality and venality and, and primitiveness. And so we haven't really rid ourselves of that mm -hmm. part of the story. And so there is a way in which crime has come to stand in for what, what used to be the belief in sort of a biological inferiority about Black people, right? It's like, no, Black people aren't necessarily biologically inferior because, of course, there are Black people who are great. But there is this other thing, and it's a cultural explanation. Therefore, when faced with the just plain facts, facts that really smart and educated white people should know, like the fact that the GI Bill, mm. by the terms of the bill did not exclude the hundreds of thousands of black GIs who served honorably. But in practice, because it was left to mm. the administration of states and localities, because higher education itself was so segregated, very few black veterans were able to use mm. the education portion and even fewer, less than 2% of those who got VA loans to have home ownership, which is just you know, critical for intergenerational wealth and all other economic security coming after went to black homeowners because of racial covenants and redlining. Mm. You know, throughout the country, in the majority of cities, the majority of homes that the suburbs were built with federal largesse that ex that asked developers, required them not to sell to black people. These are facts that are so important to how we live that they should be just known. And I saw a tweet from someone who's an award-winning thought leader and creative person in the world. And she said, I had no idea about this. That kind of forced ignorance, 
that need to stay ignorant to preserve the innocence mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is a big part of, I think, the the intellectual cost of racism to white people. And I think it's a big part of the the need to maintain goodness above all else. Right. The the sum of the work of of white supremacy in in the last two hundred years has been to make sure that we all don't think about it, don't look at it, don't understand it. And and I think that one of the the untallied costs is the economic system. It's not often linked, right? Why is it that we have this bizarrely regressive and top-heavy economic system and this tax code that allows the wealthiest to pay um, an average of 20% of their income in taxes while everyone else pays between 25 and Mm -hmm. 30? What belief does that tax code represent about the relative merit of people who already have a lot of money versus everybody else. And I do believe that if you boil it down, racism is founded on a belief in a hierarchy of human value. And it is instrumental to pursue greed, to pursue and to justify economic systems that allow for the suffering of others and the sort of showering and cascading of advantage and benefits on on other people. Mm. The central metaphor in my book, The Sum of Us, is the drained public pool. I went around the country finding towns and cities where in the 1930s and 40s, with public money, uh, the cities and towns had built these grand resort public pools, which were this kind of unprecedented commitment to the high quality of life and leisure of all of the town's citizens, you know, working class, middle class and wealthy alike. And they became really the beating social heart of these communities. And almost without exception, either by explicit segregation order or informal policing by white people who were at the pools, they were segregated. And Black families, though taxpayers, were not allowed to swim as well. And in the 1950s and early 60s, Black community members began to win either lawsuits or advocacy fights to be allowed to swim and integrate these pools. And in many of these communities, the town's decided to drain their public pools rather than let Black families swim too. And in so doing, of course, they robbed themselves of a public amenity that had been one of the lifebloods and one of the sort of most vivid public goods and public commitments to a high quality of life. But they were willing to do it in order to maintain the lie of white supremacy. And in so many ways, it feels like that's what happened to our entire country, that we drained the pool rather than integrate it Mm -hmm. with just such a marked departure from the first half of the 20th century where white government policy created a white middle class. You had high union density and you had a high minimum wage. You had high levels of taxation that then invested in American infrastructure and the subsidization of home ownership for people making you know, poverty and working class wages by the federal government. And all of it was done on racially exclusive terms, all of Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And once the civil rights movement demanded 
integration in our public policy, it stopped. Yeah. And you began to see a shift in all of those policies, our tax policy, our wages, our labor policy, our you know public investments, a shift away from the public, away from trying to guarantee a high quality of life. And so I you know, learned a story as a progressive economic policy person growing up in my career that was about the golden era of shared prosperity between the New Deal and the late 1960s that you know, included race as sort of an afterthought. It was like, yes, and there were disparities, and yes, and there were exclusions, but nobody linked for me why did it stop, right? It was always like, well, you know, corporations organized and then there was Reagan and it's like, yeah, sure. But the, the, all of those people were the Henry Ford of the previous generation. You know what I mean? Like what happened to those same white men? Why did they suddenly, mm-hmm. why did they suddenly shred the social contract instead of being willing to fund it? And I really do believe it was a sense of mm-hmm. that zero sum that said, wait a second, mm-hmm. we would have to share this bounty with people who do not look like us, who have been told, whether they're women, brown and black people, we've been told Mm -hmm. that those people are fundamentally not worthy. They are fundamentally not on our team. And so we are actually going to take our toys and run away. Mm -hmm. And that's Mm -hmm. sort of where we are today. Let me me ask you about the essential worker for a second, Mm. because... um, you know, one one of the reasons that I do not hear from people enough about why this pandemic has hit um, black and brown people so hard and women um, is because they're essential workers, uh-huh. um, which means they're at the bottom of the totem pole. Now, the justification I hear when I talk about the hourly workers at Disney or anywhere else not getting paid well is, but what value do they bring to the enterprise? They get yeah. to be paid in proportion to the value they represent you know, the monetary value they represent. Hmm. It's massive bullshit because if you're, if you're, for instance, scrubbing the sidewalks at a place that's famous for being pristine and people come there because it's pristine, obviously you create financial value for the enterprise. But okay, I think it all got laid bare in this moment um, when we saw that, that all of a sudden there were people we couldn't do without. And they were all the value of any enterprise, which is why we use the word essential for them. Uh And I thought we might have a moment, right, where there might be a critical shifting in in the way we understand people who do that work. And of course, it's been lost once again, and we're fine with them being uninsured and not having paid sick leave and all the rest of it. But, But I mean, what do you think it will take to get the corporate hierarchy to understand the job that they have as as one that encompasses the well-being of all of society. Honestly, I think it's going to take new laws. I agree with you and on your analysis of mm-hmm. the revelation of the essential worker, of the delivery driver, of the home health care aide, of the daycare instructor, of um, the meatpacking plant, factory worker, um, of the cleaning staff at all of these places, you know, it's very clear that that lesson, that Mother Nature gave us this lesson about whose work is essential. But there was a bill, you know, authored by Elizabeth Warren and Ro Khanna in the Senate and the House. Uh To be an essential worker's bill of rights, which was Mm -hmm. not like, you know, make the millionaires. It was make sure they have protective equipment, make sure they have uh, paid sick time off and benefits and, you know, a living wage. And Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate have been unwilling to take up the bill. 
And so I don't think that the financial incentives are going to communicate anything different until there are new laws in place. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think we need a, you know, it's. I think right. we need a political right. answer. That's just what's needed. You know, I, I think that that is um, one of the two very essential, indispensable things that has to happen. It has to happen like yesterday. But I do believe also that a shift in mindset is also going to have to happen. Yeah. I think that's right. You know, I'm a strong believer in narrative change and belief change and consciousness raising. We've gotten so far away from the era of, you know, a CEO making 25 times oh my God. the average worker. Yeah. And it is so tied up with who's doing the work today, right? It's still white men in the C-suites overwhelmingly. Mm-hmm. And it is increasingly, you know, immigrants, black and brown people and women in these underpaid poverty wage jobs. And part of the signal that needs to come to shift that consciousness is that other white men who are running our government need to stand mm-hmm. up for mm-hmm. those workers, right? Yeah. It's a, you know, yeah. if you if you got the entire Republican Party and much of the Democratic Party being fine with this exploitation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then, you know, that's yeah. also a signal that shifts, you know, that keeps a consciousness in a certain direction. Right. And I keep reminding people that the CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, came home with $66 million and thought that was just fine. Also was considering running for president as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And um, and he was totally, didn't see any inconsistency in being a Democrat and also sending people home hungry who work full time yeah. because you, you almost have, you have to be Bernie Sanders and leave the party to be able to think differently about the way people are paid. To me, that just is deeply distressing because mm-hmm. then who will stand up for mm-hmm. everybody if the Democratic Party doesn't? Um, so, yeah, um, and I'm awfully glad he's not running. <laughs> <laughs> Actually... The, the way racism has played out in this country has always been this dance between what is rational and what is not rational. Um, because if you follow the money and you follow the power, it feels like somebody sat down and designed a racist system specifically to mm-hmm. resource and make powerful only white people. It feels to me like a plan. <laughs> but then again, the way we've bankrupted this country yeah. in the name of distributing assets so poorly and pushing certain communities down so totally, that feels completely irrational. Mm -hmm. I mean, is this how racism works everywhere? Because we're not the only racist country. Or is this just an American problem? Yeah, I've spent my life and career studying these dynamics uh, in the United States and feel, you know, up to my ears uh, in in the American (laughs) story of this. But it's also true that anywhere where the logic of racism helped further greed, helped further sort of the massive accumulation of wealth, you saw many of these dynamics. And so it's very much a part of colonialism. Um, it's very much a part of, of apartheid. Um, it's very much a part of global capitalism. But the way in which we are essentially a multiracial democracy that has not yet been willing to commit to multiracial prosperity and to high-functioning 
government and to a fair economy feels very American. Mm -hmm. So, okay, for me, who has spent um, most of my adult life calling myself a feminist and um, fighting for the things that I think are right from a feminist perspective, um, and yet white feminists have started to get a little bit of a tinge on it lately that worries me. I'm worried we're looking at a pretty big backlash against feminism. And yet when I hear the words social dominance um, in the context of, of talking about race, I can't help but also be thinking about the context of gender. I'm just wondering, are you at all worried about a backlash against feminism? And, and like, how do we save a space for a conversation around gender mm. in this whole mm. context that we're in? That is such an important conversation to have and, and Black feminists with way more sophistication and, and history in this work have done a much better job than I'm about to do. But when you talk about the a hierarchy of human value, it absolutely allows you to see how class, race, gender, citizenship status, disability status, and sexuality and, and gender expression are parts of that hierarchy, right? And so sexism, one of the core forces that structures our economy and our society, and it also has this different escape hatch in it because part of what the patriarchy needs is the attachment and involvement of women. Mm -hmm. And the logic of racism actually wants either total control or total elimination of the external threat of the other race, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas the patriarchy doesn't mm -hmm. want to totally exterminate the other gender, right? I mean, that's, mm -hmm. it's, that's not actually yeah. the logic, right? No, you're right, you're right, you're right. That's a very important difference. Yeah. Um, and so that in that escape hatch, right, mm -hmm. there's a way for white women to travel in on the racial route and get higher up on that ladder. And in some ways, why wouldn't you want to, right? If you, if you have very few rights as a woman and very mm -hmm. little respect, but your skin color affords you a rung up mm -hmm. and a way to get yeah. more social esteem yeah. and wealth and access, mm -hmm. it's very natural to want to climb up there and sort of cloak yourself in that racial privilege in order to escape, at least for moments, your sexual subjugation, your gender subjugation. Um, so that's why the Karen exists, right? And and there's been really beautiful historical research mm -hmm. about just how profound to the mm -hmm. the creation of the myth of white supremacy was the was the contribution of the idea of the innocent white womanhood. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, I think there is a massive cost to white women of choosing whiteness over solidarity with other women mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of other races and backgrounds, a massive cost. You know, we would be the majority as women. Yes, easily. Yeah. If we had white women in the coalition for progress in an enduring mm -hmm. way. And of course, there are very many famous and, and important white feminists, but the majority of white women mm -hmm. are not on the feminist program in terms of the way they vote and, and mm -hmm. the fights that they choose to align themselves with. And so in many ways, you know, the fight for a truly just world is really in 
a fight for the soul of white people to get on board. And, and what we've started to see is that, you know, when we can get enough white people on board with the program for progress, mm-hmm. then we can have breakthroughs like the Obama mm-hmm. presidency and like the 2018 mm-hmm. midterm election. But when we can't, mm-hmm. then we, we risk mm-hmm. everything in our country. Everything. Everything. Mm. So last week, a group of social justice organizations did a long analysis of what Facebook's policies were, and that was not greeted positively. How aware were you of all that going on? Did you participate in that? So I'm the chair of the Board of Color of Change. Um, I've been so proud that we've had a years-long campaign to force Facebook, which is now you know, the public square is now the most influential communicator and distribution panel for both our news and our politics. They are woefully underregulated, unregulated in many ways, and and they have to be held to a higher standard. And so Color of Change has had a longstanding campaign that has really reached a fever pitch in the past couple of months. It's called the Stop Hate for Profit campaign. And um, Rashad Robinson, who's the executive director, is the one who's in the meeting and whose brainchild this is. And it's resulted in over a thousand corporations pledging to stop um, advertising on Facebook in July. And, um, you know, when I last looked, it was an 8% drop in their share price. I mean, this is really important pressure mm-hmm. that's being put on a company that that fundamentally doesn't want to um be seen as responsible. And what they do is they they don't understand how its algorithms really drives people towards these echo chambers of extremism. It is absolutely, you know, people pay a lot of attention to what's going on at Fox News, but it's it's so much about Mm. Facebook and YouTube as well. Yeah, it's a testament to the idea that there's no such thing as colorblindness. Because, you know, I mean, they I know they write these algorithms thinking they have everything accounted for and they just don't know what they don't know. They, you know, (laughs) which is the problem with colorblindness. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a an overall ethos in the tech world that is um, really been captured by what I think of as sort of a, a radical libertarianism that has its roots actually in the intellectual underpinnings of anti-government, anti-racial equality and anti-civil rights. You know, I think many of them don't realize that that's where this anti-government, you know, no regulation um, intellectual history leads them to, but it is. And then you start to see it coming back to roost when it means that tech giants are unwilling to do what's right. And you realize that actually it's all of a piece, the same anti-government, anti-regulation ethos, which feels like, oh, just let the brilliant guys do what they want to do, also means your own workers um, have no one to stick yeah, up for them. Exactly. I, I, it's interesting because the, 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 the ferocious libertarian tends to be a white male, again. Um, mm-hmm, and and mm-hmm. it's so interesting to me that they don't look around and notice all the other white men in the room. Yeah. Um, because that would, if yeah. you really interrogated that, you would begin to understand that maybe everyone else doesn't feel comfortable with libertarianism because the things as they are aren't really great for them. And they need a structure in society that isn't supposedly colorblind to protect them from people like them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Heather, I just thank you so much for 
your time today. You took so much time, and I know everybody wants a piece of your time these days. You can find Heather on Twitter at hmcgee, which is H-M-C-G-H-E-E. And and you can go watch Heather's very good uh, TED Talk, which is like, what, 2 billion views these days? <laughs> um, it's called Racism Has a Cost for Everyone at TED.com. And you can pre-order her book, um, The Sum of Us, online, wherever books are sold. So, um, Heather, thank you. Thank you a million times. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you, Abby. And thanks for having this platform. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and spread the word. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at podcast at forkfilms.com. And thanks to my All Ears team, Kathleen Hughes, Aideen Kane, Alexis Pancrazi, Christine Schomer, Kat Vecchio, Lauren Winbush, and Sabrina Yates. Our theme music was composed by Bob Golden. Thanks for listening.